0: Well, good morning and welcome back to town. It is a joy to see you guys as we start a new year and a new semester. I am excited. We are going to launch a brand new six-week series this morning entitled Faith at Work. So whether you are a freshman uh, uh, from years away from the real world or whether you are a senior looking just months away from the real world world, or maybe you are an adult who's been in a profession for about 20 years, my hope with our series in the next six weeks is that we're going to help you begin to reimagine work in an entirely new and God-honoring way. I'll tell you guys, as we begin to think about this topic of work this morning, that for many of us, our perspective on work or employment often has been shaped in some form or fashion, typically negatively, by our first-ever jobs, all right? I don't know what your first ever job was, but for me, I was a cashier at a men's shoe store. It seemed like a perfect situation. I would handle the money. Uh, I would have men customers who were shopping for one shoe only, all right? Not trying to be sexist, but it's true. They're a little easier customer, all right? And there would be sports on TV nonstop. It seemed like the perfect working env- environment until I ran across two key problems. The first was this I was in high school a very, very timid dude who hated public speaking. ha! <laughs> Still do, all right? Um, And so I would get on the PA system, and I would have to make announcements or just say, hey, that someone has a call, but I was incredibly timid vocally. I was so timid vocally that they would often have to tell me I needed to speak up, and then they began to call me Michael Jackson, all right, which... (laughs) Had all kinds of issues with it, all right? Uh, But then it went from there and it got even worse because they would have this deal they would do, the salesman would, every single time when a customer was ready to purchase some shoes, they would bring their customer, typically, and the kids up to the counter with the shoes for me to finish and close the sale. But they would always introduce me to their customer as skillet. And then they would proceed to explain to their customer that I was the first juvenile youth that they were taking a second chance on on this new work release program from juvenile prison, all right? It was awful. And then I had to ask for the customer's mailing address and their credit card information, all right? It was not a good entry experience into the workplace, all right? I, I remember walking through that, and I remember having a series of just really basic questions like this. Am I in the right job? <laughs> what am I going to be doing in five years? Will I still be here or will I have moved on to bigger and better things, right? I also begin to wonder how in the world do I treat coworkers like this who seem crazy out of their minds or authorities and bosses that are seeming to allow these kinds of things to happen? How do I respond to these kinds of coworkers and these kinds of authorities and lastly, I began to kind of wrestle with an overarching, bigger question as a believer in high school. I began to wrestle with this question that I think many of us wrestle with that we're going to begin to answer really over the next six weeks, and it was this How in the world does my vocation or my work connect to my faith at all? I was a cashier in a men's shoe store, and I was beginning to wonder and beginning to think about how does what I do matter at all for eternity? I couldn't answer those questions then. I remember walking through college and really struggling to answer them as well. And I will tell you whether you are a freshman who's years away from the real world, or even an internship, or whether you're a senior who's just months away, or whether you've been in a career maybe even 20 years, I think many are still asking those questions and they're struggling to land the plane on them. How does their faith relate to their work? How does their work connect at all with God's work? Those are questions I was asking even in high school in that first job experience that was not ideal. And there were questions that I had incredible amounts of confusion about. And I began to realize if I'm confused about this, then surely the church would be helpful. But as I began to look around and listen, the church typically was very silent on the topic of work and vocation. The church typically wasn't saying much and their silence was only exasperating the disconnect I felt with an arena and environment of my life that I was spending hours in, hours. When you guys graduate from this place and you actually get a job and you actually get to make some money, praise the Lord, whenever that may come, right? You're going to spend more of your waking hours in a workforce, and a workplace environment than you will spend in any other sphere of your life. It's a critical arena, and yet despite its criticality, for many of us, we have no idea how our faith influences, shapes, or matters at all in terms of our work. And so what we're going to do for the next six weeks is take a look at that topic and try to develop an answer to that question, because I think it's absolutely vital. If your faith is not connected to your work, or if your faith cannot inform your work decisions, then what you do, where you do it, and how you do it is going to be Uh, You just figure it out on your own. But surely our faith has something to say to those kinds of questions that are absolutely vital, the kinds of questions that you're already asking as you walk through this collegiate experience or maybe as you're already in a career right now. What do the scriptures say for us? It's interesting. There's not just confusion on the topic that really, if you look at uh, polling data, there's also an amazing amount of frustration on the topic. A 2013 Gallup poll uh, on employment recognized this, that there's three kinds of employees. This is what they said. They highlighted three different categories of employees. There are those that they said were engaged, meaning as they stepped into their work, they had a passion about it and they felt a profound, meaningful connection to it. Those who are considered engaged employees. Then there are those that were not engaged, meaning they literally have just kind of checked out. (laughs) They're there, they're going through the motions, but it's like they're sleepwalking. And then lastly, there are a category of employees that are actively disengaged, meaning they're not just unhappy, but while they're at work, they're actively and proactively trying to undermine everything that's happening, okay? Three different categories of employees. And I want to show you the data. I want to show you where these categories and how many people are in each. This is Gallup polling data since 2000 all the way to 2012. That's a 13-year period, all right? And in this period, what you're going to see at the very top of the graph is that in no year did the engaged employees who felt a passion for their work and a profound connection to it, never in any year did that category amount to more than 30% of the workforce. (laughs) Less than 30% of the workforce every single year feels not engaged, at least. They're not profoundly connected to it. Uh, Almost over 50% are not engaged, which means they're there, but they're just kind of going through the motions. And then almost 20% are actively disengaged, which means they hate it, and they're trying to undermine everything that their job asks of them. Okay. Which means as you look at the workforce polling data, 70% of employees over a 12-year period, year after year after year, are telling us they are not engaged with work. It's not meaningful to them. They're not passionate about it. They're just there, and they're going through the motions, or they're hating it. (laughs) That's Gallup pulling data, all right? And so my question is this, surely (laughs) it could be better, right? (laughs) Surely God would have something better for us. And the question is, why are we here? Why is there such confusion on the topic of work? And why is there such frustration? Oral oral historian Studs Terkel in his book, Working, said this, that most people live somewhere between a grudging acceptance of their job and an active dislike of it. And that's sombering as you think about the real world, right? Or as you're sitting in a career for every single one of us, I remember when I was sitting in college, I was looking at employment and vocation one day. I was thinking, surely I'm going to find something. Maybe it's not my dream job, but I'm going to find something I'm passionate about that I'm going to find meaningful that I can invest my life in, in whatever vocation that would be. That was the quest. Well, it seems that 70% of people aren't finding that in the workforce. Well, why? Why is that? I think for many of us, I think it's because they have not found a way to connect often faith or sense of who God is with vocation at all. These are two different worlds and there's a profound disconnect between faith and work, which is why there's no wonder there's such confusion about the topic and there's such frustration in the topic because we've separated these two things from one another. So no wonder we're confused and we're frustrated. What I want to begin to do this morning and what I want to begin to do in the next six weeks is is reorient and reconnect these two topics so that we can find and that we can experience God's best in that topic. All right, Uh, It's fascinating as we kind of walk through that. I'll tell you guys this morning as we walk through uh, this idea of, of the disconnect between faith and work. I'll tell you guys, this isn't going to be kind of a normal morning where we open a passage and I kind of go verse by verse. Uh, Really what we're going to do a lot this morning is going to be cultural and sociological. There's a profound disconnect between faith and work, and we're going to look in the next five weeks as to what the scriptures say about these topics. But this week and this morning, what I want to do is show you culturally and sociologically how we got here. How do we get to this place where there's such a profound disconnect between these ideas? And as we do that this morning and as we go over the next five, six weeks, I want to highlight for you guys a couple of resources that I'm going to lean on heavily that I'm going to highly encourage you guys to either grab or look at yourself as we kind of walk through the series. Uh, The first is Tim Keller's book, Every Good Endeavor. Much of what I'm going to say on Sundays uh, over the next five, six weeks is going to be patterned directly off of his book. I had a chance to spend a sabbatical this previous summer and I spent the next last eight ten uh, months thinking and wrestling through this topic and reading on this topic and no one nails the issue like Keller does in this book. If you want one book, this is the best one. Uh, We're going to pattern much of our discussion over the next six weeks off of Keller's discussion in every good endeavor. Also, I'll tell you guys, as the church has been silent on this topic, I've been really indebted not just to Keller, who's written on the topic, but to Keller's church in New York, Redeemer Presbyterian, as they've kind of created on an offshoot this whole thing called the Center for Faith and Work. What does the scripture say about the topic? And they have incredible amounts of resources, conferences, publications. And so these two pieces will be a lot of what we will lean on over the next six weeks. So I want you guys to know kind of where we're pulling some stuff from as we kind of construct it. And I'll drop some other resources along the way as we walk through. Really what's been a year-long journey for me wrestling and thinking through for you guys as students where are you? Where are you heading? And then for some alumni we've talked to, listening to their stories. We had an alumni this summer who said this to me, thinking about their vocation. I said, how's it work going? And she said this. Well either one day I'm gonna die or one day I'm gonna get fired. It's <laughs> like wow, that's really hopeful. <laughs> a lot of vision there, right? I think we need to do some work so that we can help prepare and send you guys off better, whether you're a senior who's looking at it really soon, or even for some of our working professionals here at Grace, are we preparing them and giving them the kind of vision that they need for their vocation? So that's where we're going this morning. That's where we're going to go over the next few weeks, all right? this idea of faith and work. Well, how did we get here? Uh, There's a profound disconnect between faith and work, but how did we get here exactly? I want to kind of autopsy that for you guys and give you guys a little sense of how we actually arrived at this place where there's such a profound disconnect between faith and work. And the first is this, uh, that there's been a drift in our culture and in our society, our way of thinking worldview toward dualism and dichotomy. There's been a drift toward dualism and dichotomy. And what does that mean? Well, it really kind of started with a lot of Greek thought way back when. And what Greeks did in terms of dualism, uh, kind of coming off of some Gnostic thought, is that Greeks uh, separated the world into the physical and the non-physical. They separated the world into the material and the immaterial. And specifically, it was the physical along with the spiritual and the mental. And they made a distinction between the physical with the spiritual and the mental. And not only did they make a distinction separating them out, but they elevated the non-material over the material. And what Greek said was that that which was spiritual or that which was mental or intellectual was more important and more valued with a greater dignity than the physical. And not only that, but they saw work, which involved often the physical, as absolutely demeaning. A philosopher uh, familiar with Greek thought said this, that to the Greeks, work was a curse and nothing else. In fact, Aristotle will think of unemployment as the primary requisite for a worthwhile life. (laughs) Which means all of us are not going to have worthwhile lives, right? Right? That there's this view starting from Greek thought in which work was nothing more than a curse, that it was meant to be beneath us. And so if we could avoid it, we would have a worthwhile life. In fact, they recognized that certain kinds of work though were more important than others. And so if you were doing physical or or menial work, it was demeaning. But if you were doing that which was cultural or regarding art or philosophy or religion or politics, that which was mental or intellectual, that was way more valued and way more significant. And so in this dualism thought, all of a sudden you have a distinction between the physical and the non-physical. And all of a sudden, not just a distinction, but an elevation of the non-physical over the physical. And all of a sudden we get to a place where work is no longer seen as something that's helpful at all. It's not just dualism that we've inherited, but from dualism, I would argue that we really have a, a raging dichotomy that's resulted between the sacred and the secular. That in our modern culture, as we think about life, as we think about work especially, uh, we have this raging view of what is secular and what is sacred, as what is religious and what is non-religious. And in our postmodern culture today, really the idea is if you have something that is religious, it shouldn't be let into the common square of politics, of education, or any other arena of your life. That which is sacred or religious should be kept over here, and it shouldn't touch inform, or speak into any other arena of life. Why would your faith speak into the bedroom? Why would your faith speak into the boardroom? Why would your faith speak into the classroom? That's the concept. That's the idea. And so because of that, there's been this incredible uh, specialization and separation so that faith cannot inform or speak into other arenas of life in such a way that work really has suffered because of it. Faith and work have now become profoundly disconnected, especially with this idea of what is sacred and what is secular. As we think about work, we've even separated work into those categories. We have work that is sacred, and we have work that is secular, right? So what is the sacred work? Sacred work, of course, would be those that are pastors and those that are missionaries, right? And then secular work, at least what our culture often thinks about and what we've inherited at times, is those kinds of professions that are not those things, that are not religious in orientation. My question will be, as we look through the series, is does God orient vocations in those kind of separatistic ways? And I think he doesn't. In fact, as we think about ministry or we think about work, really the same Greek word for work that gets translated ministry is the same Greek word that gets translated for other, other, every other kind of profession that it doesn't seem from the Greek or from God himself that he has that kind of distinction about the kinds of vocations that we have. There's not sacred, sacred vocations and there's not secular vocations. But we've so disrupted our way of looking at the world that we think in those categories now. In fact, I love this quote from a businessman named William Deal, and he says this, If lay people can't find any spiritual meaning in their work, they're condemned to living a certain dual life. Again, this idea of dualism. Not connecting what they do on Sunday morning with what they do the rest of the week. They need to discover that the very actions of daily life are spiritual, and they enable people to touch God in the world, not away from it. And such a spirituality will say, Your work is your prayer. We have inherited a ton from Greek thought, uh, from the, the emphasis and the proliferation of a lot of dichotomies in the way that we view the world in terms of sacred and secular, that for us, as we come into this topic of work, we have a lot of baggage. We approach it and we think about it in a way that I think is going to be really different than what we're going to see from the scriptures over the next five weeks. And some of this is because of external cultural influences, but I'm going to submit, and I can say it because I'm inside the church, that a lot of it is also because of the internal silence and confusion from the church. (laughs) A lot of us don't know how to connect faith and work, not just because there's been a drift toward dualism and dichotomy, but also because there's been confusion from the church on the topic. Uh, It's interesting, uh, David Miller says this, speaking of the church. He says, Whether conscious or unintended, the pulpit all too frequently sends a signal that work in the church matters, but work in the world does not. It is perhaps no surprise then that workers often feel unsupported by the Sunday church and their Monday workplace vocations. This is absolutely huge. Why is this? Why has this happened? Why is the church either confused on the topic or why are they silent on the topic? And What does the pulpit have to do with it? A couple of things I'd submit to you guys. One, a lot of the people that are in the pulpits uh, don't have a lot of workplace experience and so they don't know how to speak to it. Right? I'll give you guys an example even for myself. I had three years of part-time programming experience as a computer programmer after graduating from here with a computer engineering degree. But my ability to speak directly into the workplace is frankly pretty limited, which is why even as we cover this topic in this format with you guys on Sunday mornings, I'm excited to hit the principles for you guys, and then I'm going to let your table host hit the practice because they're in the trenches where you're heading, and so they can put meat on the bones and say, he doesn't know what he's talking about. This is what it looks like, right? <laughs> and I admit that, and I see that. That's why the pulpit at times has been really limited. This is why I love our format, what we're going to do with you guys in the next six weeks. But also, I'll tell you guys, there's not just been a silence on it, but I'll tell you guys, typically what I've heard for years from the church on the topic of vocation and its connection to faith is this, it's twofold. Typically, pastors like to say, or they have said that the connection between faith and your vocation is this, it's twofold. One, you're going to make money in that vocation that you can give to the church, or you're going to be around unbelievers that you can share the gospel with and you can eventually bring them to the church. That's the connection of faith and work. I'm going to submit to you this morning, over the next five weeks, that's incredibly superficial connection between faith and work. Frankly, those are indirect byproducts of your vocation. They are not the direct byproduct of the vocation. And if the church can only make the connection between faith and work in terms of the money that you'll make, that you'll give to the church, or the people that you'll share the gospel with, that you'll bring to the church, they've made a connection that is both indirect and that is church-centric. And they've missed the boat as to God's view of vocation itself. Let me illustrate for you guys. Uh, when I was a kid growing up, um, one of the habits that my dad and I got into is we loved to buy gifts for my mom that were <laughs> for the kitchen, all right? <laughs> and so we would buy like cake trays, baking pans, and then it kind of became a joke and we kind of kept just building on it. And so we began to buy like crazy things like bread makers and it just went on and on year after year, all right? Now, did my mom like to cook? yes. Were these good gifts? Yes, they were top of the line, all right? But were our gifts for the sheer love of cooking? No. Why? Because it directly and indirectly benefited us, right? Okay. I think sometimes when the church speaks of vocation in response to tithing or response to coworkers that get brought to the church, they're speaking toward indirect benefits of it and they've missed the sheer love of the vocation. And what we're going to do next week, especially, is expound that and talk about what is God's design for vocation, and what you're going to see next week is going to be really different than maybe anything you've heard before. And so what God's designed vocation to be, and we're going to start all the way back in Genesis 1, and we're going to see that God worked, and then he asked Adam and Eve to work, and the work that he gave them looks very different than anything we've typically said about vocation. Because when we speak about tithing and we speak about coworkers that you can bring to the church, those are indirect benefits of vocation, and they are church-centric benefits of vocation. But the primary benefit of vocation may have nothing to do with what occurs in the walls of the church, but it occurs on the outside of the walls of the church, in the city and in the community. And we miss that. We're going to try to develop that for you guys over the next five weeks, all right? I think the church has led to some of this. The church has been causal in it. And really the question I want to ask as we wrestle with this connection is, is there a connection between faith and work that actually directly speaks to the work itself? So if you're an accountant, God bless you, you're going to spend a lot of time with Excel, right? Maybe that's just really an over-glamorization or whatever. But what does that have to do with the kingdom of God? If you're an accountant eight hours a day slogging away at Excel, what does that have to do with the kingdom of God and the work of God? If you're an engineer, if you're a lawyer, if you're a doctor, whatever vocation teacher that you're going to step into, how does your work directly relate to the work of God and the kingdom of God, irrespective of money that you'll make and coworkers that you'll share the gospel with? There is an answer to that. You got to come back next week, all right? So those are the causes for the disconnect. So let's begin to help help sort through the solutions to this. How do we actually begin to find a connection that is not uh, church-centric or indirect? What do we do? I think you and I need to do, we need a new definition that does not involve dichotomies. We need a new definition that does not involve dichotomies. And here's a couple that I want to highlight. First of all, I want to throw out this dichotomy of paid versus unpaid. Over the next five, six weeks, as we talk about work, we talk about vocation, I'm going to move us away from this kind of dichotomy. I'm not going to always be speaking about workplace paid work. I'll tell you guys, when I leave this office place and I come home to kids and kitchen and dishes, (laughs) I leave one job for another job, all right? It's work when I go home. It's glorious and it's fulfilling and it's great. But being a dad, being a husband, being a home caretaker is work. That work involves when we're paid and when we're not paid. Uh, as we serve in a local church environment, or as you serve in a political environment, wherever even our civic life, all of those aspects are work. As we contribute to the development of our society, our family, our homes, and our churches, that's all work, whether we're paid for it or not. So let's do away with that uh, limiter, because frankly, for you guys as students, you are working your tails off, and not only are you not getting paid, you're being you're paying someone else to work you hard. What's wrong with that, right? But you are working and working really, really hard. So a lot of what we're going to talk about faith and work is going to be just as applicable to you in the classroom and in the university setting as it will one day as you step into workplace. It's just that the sphere changes and hopefully your compensation changes too, all right? Uh, Secondly, uh, another dichotomy I want to blow away, and you you saw this coming, but this dichotomy of secular and sacred. Uh, We got to stop speaking in terms of these kinds of labels. Uh, And let me quote from the great reformer, Martin Luther, when he says this, that it is pure inventions that that pope, bishops, priests, and monks are called the spiritual estate, while princes, lords, artisans, and farmers are called the temporal estate. Again, he's saying this idea that there's a sacred profession and a secular profession, let's blow it away. This is indeed a piece of deceit and hypocrisy and yet no one need be intimidated by it and that for this reason all Christians are truly of the spiritual estate and there is no difference among them except that of office. We are all consecrated priests and I didn't give you guys the quote. Here it is, all right. Uh, we are all consecrated priests. What I think Luther's doing here is not just emphasizing the priesthood of all believers but he's emphasizing the priestly activity of believers in any office or vocational arena that they step into. That's a huge move. Not just that all believers are of a priestly class, but that no matter their office or vocation, their activity can have the opportunity to be of a priestly kind of activity. How do we get there? How does that idea get uh, germinated and developed? I think part of it goes back to their view of the sovereignty of God. Uh, One of my favorite quotes in terms of some of the reading on this uh, whole idea of vocation comes from a guy named Abraham Kuyper, and he says, There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. That if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then he's sovereign over every arena of your life. That he has a purpose for marriage, he has a purpose for your home, he has a purpose for your school life, he has a purpose for your sex life, and he has a purpose for your work life. And that if he's sovereign over every arena of life, then he can speak into that because of the relationship that he has with you. Uh, I had, had this realized to me in a very profound way yesterday. Uh, we have two little kids, uh, a little girl, Caroline, who's six, a little boy, Colt, who's three and a half. And one of the interesting things at the early stage of development of a child is there's a profound sense of security with a parent. And that relationship and this jurisdiction over every arena of that little dude's life is extreme. So early on, they don't eat without us, okay? Uh, They don't get cleaned without us. There's nothing they can do in their life without us. So our jurisdiction over them is extensive everything flows through us. We have an influence on every arena of their life, which means as they develop and as they mature, there's also certain conversations that they're not used to occurring in certain contexts, right? They don't know how to compartmentalize yet. That happens in adulthood and that tendency to compartmentalize is what got us in trouble with this whole faith and work thing. But for my boy yesterday, we're at Lupas, all right? Uh, and I'm ordering coffee and he's sitting at the bar with Caroline, our daughter, and they're just talking. And all of a sudden, across the coffee shop, he says to me out loud in front of everybody and everybody, Everyone's studying quietly. Daddy, I have to go poo-poo now, all right? Because of the relationship in my jurisdiction over all of his life, he brings everything to me and doesn't worry about who hears, all right? The coffee shop completely lost it for the next five minutes, all right? It was (laughs) mortifying, all right? Mortifying, all right? So it was a great conversation coming home going, buddy, you can tell me about anything, but let's think about our environment when you want to tell me, all right? Great moment, teachable moment, all right? But in terms of our relationship with Christ, he has jurisdiction over all of our life, which is why there's a connection of our faith with every element of our life. We can't compartmentalize our life and think that our faith can't apply to it because it applies to every arena of life, every single arena. Uh, Paul will say it this way in Colossians chapter one. He says, he is the image speaking of Jesus of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation for by him, all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Christ is sovereign over everything that is created, everything that is visible and invisible, which means even vocation is created by him and it's for him. Our faith relates to our vocation and our work-life existence. (laughs) can't compartmentalize it. We need a new definition. We need a new idea of vocation. Here's Keller's uh, critical definition that's kind of the synthesis of the book. We'll come back to this as we go. Here's what he says. A job is a vocation, which means it's not just an occupation. It's not just something you do, but it's a vocation in this sense if someone else calls you to do it and you do it for them rather than for yourself. And so our work should be reimagined as a mission or service to something beyond merely our own interest, as we shall see thinking of work mainly as a means of self-fulfillment and self-realization slowly crushes a person and it undermines society itself. Keller's going to unpack for us here, and we're going to expound it as we go, a new paradigm and a new idea of vocation. Think back to Renaissance days when an artist would be called forth by the city to commission and to develop a piece of art that would be for the benefit of the city. That's the idea of vocation. That's the idea that we ought to have of our work, that someone has called us to it, not primarily for our own benefit, but for the benefit of the city and for our community and our country and the world. But when we get career and we get vocation disconnected from faith, of course, then it becomes about us, our own self-advancement. And all of a sudden, we choose the wrong jobs. We go about work for the wrong reasons. And all of a sudden, it's a weight upon us, and it undermines the fabric of society itself. Which is why one of my favorite quotes comes from Robert Bella, and he says this, that to make a real difference in our world today, There would have to be a reappropriation of the idea of vocation or return in a new way to the idea of work as a contribution to the good of all and not merely as a means of one's own advancement. What he's saying is as you look at your world at large, as you see social injustices, as you see a broken world, a corrupt world, as you see poverty that cannot be fixed, as you look at the world and you go, there are so many things wrong with it. What Bella and what Keller are going to say is your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God, your greatest contribution to the world at large, will primarily be through your career. It's not about primarily what it does for you, but it's going to be about what you do for someone else and your contribution to the city, the communities that you're a part of. That God's purpose for your life is not despite of your vocation or a secondary add-on, but it's going to be primarily and strongly through your vocation. And the vocations that are going to have an impact are not just those that we would highlight as sacred that connect with God's work. No, no, no. All vocations connect with the work of God. And I'm going to show that to you guys next week as we look at God's design for work. It's going to blow away your categories. It's going to blow away your definitions. And hopefully we're going to begin to reimagine work as God intended it. I'm going to wrap up with this one last quote Uh, after we celebrated Martin Luther King and all that he did in terms of race in our society. I ran across this quote from him this week and I thought it was profound on this idea. He says this, God's complete work is set in motion through vocation. Martin Luther King Jr. The complete work of God, what he wants in terms of the world, the kingdom of God, his complete totalitarian work in the world will be set in motion through vocation not despite your jobs or as an add-on when you have a couple hours at night when you're off, off work. There's so much of what God is going to want to do in you and through you will occur through your vocation and not despite your vocation. And so the disconnect that we have between faith and work, we're going to have to overcome that and reconnect them in a way that's going to be profound. What we're going to see next week is that God has a divine design for work and therefore we're going to see in a couple weeks after that that it has incredible dignity despite the difficulty, and we're going to eventually look at the dream of work, what God's going to do even in the future in the new heavens and the new earth. That's where we're going to go, all right? Uh, If you want to pick up Keller's book, we're going to be walking through it. We can give you guys a sense of where we're going. We'll pick up next week in chapter one. We're going to be selling it uh, in the offices. We'd love for you guys to pick it up. But I'll tell you, I am probably more excited about this series than any series we've done in about five years. Because I think it's going to be incredibly practical, I things going to be incredibly revolutionary for you as you think about your life, as you think about vocation, and you think about what God has for you as the way he's designed you, your passions, your gifts, and how he's going to use those things. So let me pray for us, all right? Lord God, I thank you that you are sovereign over all of life, over the bedroom, over the boardroom, over the classroom, over every arena of our life, that you are sovereign and you declare that it's mine. Lord, not in a way that is dictatorship, but in a way that says, if you wanna find life in these arenas, come in and through me and I will show you and I will influence you to see it and experience it to the abundant life. And Father, I pray in the midst of some of our confusion about work, in the midst of some of our frustration at times about work, Lord, I pray that you would teach us. I pray that this series would be incredibly helpful for us as we engage one day with coworkers, as we engage in the different arenas that you'll put us, Lord. I thank you that your scriptures are not silent, even though the church has been at times on this topic. I thank you that your word says much. Lord, that it will frame for us the discussion that it will teach us as we look at even beginning in Genesis 1, that you were the first to work, that work could not have had a more exalted inauguration because you worked for six days and then you rested as you created the earth and as you cultivated it. Lord, teach us and train us to see and to have work reimagined so that we understand it as you created it and as you intended it. Lord, we ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit we pray, amen.